Out on an Island LGBTQ oral histories on the Isle of Wight From coming out stories to going out memories What is it really like to be out on an island? Out on an Island is an oral history project by Stone Crabs Theatre supported by the National Lottery Heritage Fund Hello, I am Ines Sampayu and I am your host in today's podcast, Margaret Montgomery interviews Michelle Northcott. Michelle shares with us her early life memories and experiences as a trans woman on the Isle of Wight. This is Margaret Montgomery interviewing Michelle Northcott. That's right. So, Michelle, could you um, tell us how you identify and about your how you come to be on the Isle of Wight? Yes. Right. Well, first of all, I identify as a transgender female. Um, I, I'm just wondering the best way to deal with this. I transitioned, I came out, for want of a better word, when I was 60. Um, but I have been, um, I have known about my gender dysphoria f for more than 70 years, <clears throat> long time. I, uh, where, I, do you want me to start right at the beginning? Is that sensible? When I yes. was four, yes. four and a half, I, I had a complicated operation um, at, uh, what's it called? Children's Hospital in London. Um, anyway, Great Ormond, Great Ormond Street Hospital. I was there for uh, a long time, and in those days, we're talking about the 40s, in those days, uh, patients could, uh, uh, visitors could only visit for about an, an hour, or I don't think it was as much as two a day. We lived, my parents and I lived way outside London, so basically, I assumed I, I had been um, left alone. I, very, I rarely saw my parents. I mention that because it may have some, um, it may have created an effect which amplified my dysphoria. I don't know, but I did study psychology later when I went to university, so it's possible. I. My first association with the Isle of Wight was that I learned to swim because my parents and my various uncles um, used to come to Sea View on the paddle steamer uh, every summer and my uncle taught me how to swim in the swimming pool in Sea View. I learnt I, I to swim without my feet touching the bottom. So, <clears throat> so that was my first association with the island. Um, I played when I was very young with a tomboy across the road, Marion, and we did all sorts of things like dressing up and I was always the nurse and she was always the doctor. We climbed trees and did various things that kids do. Um, but when we were about, I think must have been about six or seven years old, 
we were camping in my garden and discovered that we were different because we were not wearing any clothes. We'd taken them off and my mother put her head into the door and there was Marion exploring the fact that I wasn't the same as her. So that was that ended camping in the garden and various things. But we continued, we dressed up quite often. I went over to her house and things. I <coughs> then w went to school, as you do. Um, I won a scholarship to a boys' public school in London um, around 11, but by then my parents, I gather, were worried about me. And I suppose they were worried because in those days, gay or homosexuality was illegal, and my uh, I, I discovered all of this later, and I'll explain perhaps later, but my parents were worried and they wanted to man me up. So at the age of 11, with another boy aged 11, we were put on a train to the Lake District and we walked around the Lake District for two weeks in youth hostels and planned our route and all the rest of it. Um, I don't think one would send 11-year-olds off to uh, 200 miles away on their own nowadays, but in those days it was regarded as a good thing to do. At least my parents thought it was. But I went to this public school and I hated it, but I... Um, I discovered that I was a very good runner. <clears throat> so although I was bullied and everything, because I was quite small um, at school, I did two things to uh, ameliorate that. One was another little boy. We called ourselves the Little Club. There were two of us. And if any of if either of us were picked on by bullies, we both would try and beat up the bully. So. But then that, all that pressure and bullying ended when I got onto the school, the first team cross-country running when I was 13. And I think I was the youngest boy in the school ever to have got on the first cross-country team. And then everything changed. People, I guess, respected the fact that I could run faster than them. I don't know. but. I mention it because it gave me some sense of worth and identity. When I, I uh, my parents at the age of 13 moved to Manchester uh, and I lived with my uncle in London um, for three years. And my cousin, John, um, we, we lived near, near, well, in, near Hendon. <coughs> and that was a very pleasant time of my life. My, my uncle and I 
I had a much better relationship with my uncle than with my father, for example. Um, we, in our family, it didn't discuss emotions or anything like that, was absolutely frowned on. And uh, it was, I guess, it was a typical, a really Victorian, Edwardian family upbringing. Um, but I lived away from them for three years, took, did my O-levels, and then I went to a co-educational boarding school near Manchester, which was wonderful, because then I had friends who were girls. I didn't, I've never really had many friends as uh, boys, one or two, but on the whole, I preferred the company of girls. And, um, so that was a, an introductory phase, if you like, to a proper um, <coughs> a, a relationship with the opposite sex. Before that, I, I really, apart from Marion, who was a tomboy, um, what I'm trying to say is I found it quite difficult to relate, actually, to most people, um, and I suspect that was because after I had come out of hospital, I was a real problem. And my guess is that it was partly from feeling rejected because I never, I, for several weeks, I didn't see my parents because they couldn't afford to come up into London for an hour or whatever to the hospital. Patients, go away, Lottie. No, get away from my cup of coffee. Oh. Um, so at school, I, I was at co-educational school, I was able to begin to articulate a bit better. I was a scientist. I did math, physics and chemistry, as you used to do. I had to learn French because you couldn't get to university if you didn't have a foreign language. And I succeeded after seven attempts <coughs> because there was a special French class for the ignorant sixth-form scientists. Um, in my last term, um, I was the last one in the class and my teacher was French, um, Madame Gaudon, and, uh, who was a, a petite blonde who I half fell in love with but who refused to speak English in a French lesson. So um, I'd been identified as incompetent in foreign languages but after my seventh attempt I passed French very successfully because we spoke French. We didn't sit and chant. Maybe you ladies are more uh, slightly well, you're a lot younger than me, but we used to sit in the, in the classroom chanting, Je suis du air, and it was just a joke. Whereas with Madame Gaudon, we spoke, we, ch we chatted in French, and that was good. Um, and that's relevant because I speak now three or four or five languages, so um, my boys... Uh, 
public school were pretty far of the mark when they said that I was incapable of learning foreign languages. I was incapable of learning it the way they taught it. So I went to university and um, <coughs> I f first graduated in, uh, at the uh, University of Nottingham in chemistry, but during that period I gave up maths, which I found boring, and I switched to psychology and social psychology. Look, am I going on too long? Well, the only thing I would say is um, perhaps if you, you said at the beginning that you had known from the time you were four yes. that you had... Um, well, I, I knew that, yes. That you didn't want to be... What I'm doing, because I'm an academic, I'm trying to fit Scaffold. the... Yeah. yeah, well, put, put together the, the process that I was going through. And the, the, the process is, if you feel uncomfortable, um, what I and an awful lot of, um, of uh, <coughs> transgender of females do, is you over-amplify the opposite to what, the way you feel, because you don't want to be picked on. I was a sissy. But then when I could run faster than other people, that helped my self-worth. Uh, and I think it's worth bearing that in mind. I'll come out onto the, the LGBT thing later. So was that why you chose sciences as well? Because they were No, because I was good at it. Oh. Um, and, and I had not been taught... Uh, foreign languages very well. I was adequate at English and all the other stuff. Um, wasn't very good at history. Um, and in those days, at boys' public school, you got beaten. The uh, teachers had cupboards full of canes and various things. Even the school chaplain had um, a, a, a tennis bat that he called Slammy Sammy, who would apply to your backside if you weren't... Um, listening in, um, in class, it was a different era. It was a very different era. I, my mother used to cane me if I was naughty. So it was a very different period. Right, let's go through. From, I graduated and I went to do a PhD in America, in Texas, where I got an extremely valuable research fellowship. But my professor had omitted to mention that it was an all-male school or university, um, which was not, I didn't find very satisfactory, but I managed to uh, get into and share uh, an apartment with two, two chaps, two blokes, and so that was okay. And at this time, and during my university, I had uh, started, I used to play the guitar, um, and I was, well, yeah, reasonably accomplished. And when I went to Texas, I played in a country and western band. And I've got all this guitar equipment here, which I've still got. And and that was good and enabled me to have to get enough money together to come back. Because after a year, my professor up sticks and moved to Alaska. 
the whole department. And I was asked if I wanted to go to Alaska and I did a little bit more research and much as I would have loved to have gone to Alaska, I decided it was better to continue my academic career back in England, so I did. Came back, did my masters at East Anglia and then decided not to continue to do my PhD and I joined an international company and I won't go into the name of it, but I was the very first marketing manager appointed in the company and I'd learned about marketing when I lived in the USA. Over here, we didn't do marketing then, we did sales. Um, anyway, so that, it put me on a career path and I, I said before I remarked about it with the running, I would, by, th by then I was cross-dressing at home, but had a very um, masculine, bordering on chauvinistic, I suppose, um, approach. Uh, I was quite successful. I had been married with, uh, before, but it didn't last for very long. Um, and my company sent me to Italy. Um, no, I should say it. before that, I had uh, spent a year in Ecuador and I learned Spanish in Ecuador because you, nobody in Ecuador spoke English and not where, where I was working. Um, I, came, I, I came back, um, married briefly, managed to produce a son, but the whole thing fell apart. It, we, it was not a, a successful marriage. She didn't want to live in Italy when my company sent me to live in Italy, so I, I stayed in Italy and three years later we had divorced and I lived with and then married an Italian girl. And uh, by then I was cross-dressing quite regularly. <coughs> so... Did your wife know? Yes, yes, she knew, she put up with it. Uh, at that time. Mm. <coughs> so, um, <coughs> and we produced three girls and over the next, we were married for 26 years. So, but during that time, I gradually, I was going to say came out. I think came out was rather an um, exaggerating it, but in, I came out of the complete closet. Most or many transgender females, at any rate, start in some form of transvestite cross-dressing mm -hmm. and gradually, or some of them gradually, realize th their true uh, identity. I gradually, gradually came out, um, but then that marriage began to fall apart. I had um, <coughs> signed on to do a PhD in management, 
part-time, so-called part-time PhD. And I was up to my ears in work and travel and everything. And our marriage didn't really, it was beginning to fray around the edges. We went to counselling uh, to try and uh, uh, resolve it. We shared the counselling with our children so they knew what was going on. But it, um, it, it wasn't working out. We separated. I came to work and live. Oh, by then I had uh, taken early retirement. I took early retirement and went into the academic sector. Uh, I was the uh, marketing director at one university and uh, after three years I decided that the university sector was too political for me but I continued as a visiting senior lecturer. Uh, I moved to another university and then another university over the next few years but I also did consultancy and my consultancy work took me to Latin America where I had I was part of a small company which a number of us had set up. Um, I used to go there and we were in technology transfer. So I kept my Spanish going there. I had learnt, I spent 10 years in Italy, I had learnt, I speak Italian fluently. <coughs> um, and I should say in the course of this marriage we lived in Brazil for three years so I speak Portuguese fluently as well or I used to um, but our marriage began to fray apart and we separated and I came to the island as a part of a consultancy project and there was a company here that was beginning to fail and I was asked if I could turn it round I was given three months and then six months and then a year and then another year and then another year. And we turned the business around. It was, it was very satisfying. But by then I was living on my own and I cross-dressed all the time except at work. So it, you can tell that it gradually, if you like, built up as the social pressures reduced, I was able to behave more as myself. Sorry, can I just say, um, did you cross-dress when you were out socially then? So did you, and would you go shopping? No. So it was, it was in, in the domestic setting? The, but while I lived on the island, I found a counsellor um, who was very supportive, and I used to cross-dress to go and visit with her. Um, but I was still um, too far off. Uh, the, the, the I was earning money, I was doing okay, uh, and it, I, I was scared, frankly. And in the, this was pre-internet, and it was extraordinarily difficult to find out about what was going on. But after three years on the island, I went to live back on, uh, on the mainland and I cross-dressed 
most of the time I was in a relationship with, uh, I went into a relationship with a woman who didn't like it. I tried to stop, but after a couple of years, I couldn't, didn't. That relationship ended and I went to live in Wales, up on the mountainside, and I decided, and by then um, I was able to live on a pension, I decided to come out. And I came out to discover that in the village there was a very nice lesbian couple who lived up the road, up the hill, um, and I came out and gradually came out and the village was very supportive. I mentioned before I played the guitar, my son is a very talented um, pianist and we used to play, play in the pub. Um, so it was a, a simple and very supportive route out or route out, coming out. So I, that, that worked extremely well. And then I decided I really did want to transition. I uh, began to find out a bit more about things. Um, I was just trying to think. It was the beginning, very beginning of the internet. There wasn't a lot. But I went to my doctor and she was very supportive. I said, she said, well, I think you probably know more about this than I do. What what shall we do? And I went on a, uh, a what did they call it? it wasn't counselling. It was well, I guess it was. It was psychological sex. Uh, um, it was sex orientated psychology. I went there for six months, and my counsellor agreed that I needed to move further. And I started to try and get into transitioning to discover that uh, in most places, but certainly in Wales, it was virtually impossible. So I became quite a vocal um, supporter of transgender rights in both directions, but, uh, uh, male to female, female to male, and I eventually became, I was elected to be chair of the, uh, the transgender stakeholder group, and we began to set up a proper group in the NHS to address the issue, because before it had been a catch-22, it disappeared into a black hole, and there was a vast waiting list of people who couldn't move further. So, managed to get that going. Um, I then uh, became, I got onto the escalator at that point uh, at Charing Cross because there were no facilities in Wales. Um, I was uh, put on the, well, it wasn't a waiting list. I guess it was a waiting list, but I wasn't on it for very long. And I went through the process of uh, transition over the next, 
Well, after I first came out, it was six years before I got onto the escalator. It was about three years after that. Before. Is, is the escalator a, a sort of a technical term that's used? No, it's a term I'm trying to use right. because there was, call it a waiting list, it was not a waiting list. There was a totally in, inadequate system for dealing with transgender people. It just didn't properly exist. There was a lot of words spoken, but not very little activity. And by then I had uh, got my PhD and discovered that if, you, if you're a doctor, you get listened to in the NHS and you get more access. And I was able to get a lot more access. And eventually I, I started the process. I was part of starting the process of addressing this issue. And that's still going on. And I have a good friend who is still lives in Wales with her partner and um, she's still at it. She's even got an MBE for it, but she deserves it because she's more diligent than I ever was. But we got it going, so that was fine. But then I discovered, or my hip discovered, that living on a one in four hill wasn't very satisfactory. So I decided I needed to move from my beautiful house there on the Usk Valley, overlooking the Usk Valley. And I thought about where I wanted to live. I looked at various communities like Brighton, Cardiff, Bristol. Um, but in the end, I decided that I wanted a sense of smaller community and that I would come back to live on the island. By this time, I had, I, uh, I was in uh, uh, an intimate relationship with somebody who lived on the island. Um, I'm not going to go any further into detail. She's no longer on the island. Um, and that relationship ended after about a year, but I won't go into all of that detail. It was very, for me, a very traumatic experience, but hey, um, uh, I came to the island. I looked around uh, where I might live. I looked at living back in Yarmouth, where I had lived, and uh, I, uh, she, at the time, was living in Freshwater, and I decided to look for somewhere in Yarmouth because I didn't want to be sort of next door. Um, but then, just as everything was beginning to come together, I'd managed to sell my house in Wales. <laughs> I was gazumped. <coughs> and yes, so I jumped in the car, came over here, drove down the road outside to this bungalow, which I had seen three or four years earlier when I was doing some research about moving. Saw it was back on the market, had come back on the market that morning. I went into the estate agents, I put in an, an offer immediately, and I've been here now for four and a half years. There we are. Oh, it's extinct. Um, and so how do you find living here in a fairly small community? Um, 
yes, it's a, it's a different community to Yarmouth. But my knowledge of the Yarmouth community was 25 years earlier. So it was difficult. People there, then, I was comparatively young and people were comparatively old in that community. Um, and I hadn't come out. Um, I think people used to say, you come to live on the Isle of Wight and you live in a time warp 50 years prior. I would say now you live in a time warp which is 25 years prior, but it's still a bit of a time warp. Uh, and there are more younger people because the folk who lived on the island when I was first working here were a much older group. So I decided during my research that there was a more accommodating atmosphere to, uh, to transgender. But by then I had fully transitioned and I was old enough to I think that, that there's a, there's a there's some jargon which talks about passing uh, I when you get to my age you don't worry about things like that and I've found on the whole that I've been accepted for who I am but there is I suspect a latent difficulty with um, getting to know me better. So it, you become lonely, lonelier, um, and that's more or less where I am now. So you feel isolated, or you are isolated? Well, I'm isolated except that I'm a mentor for the Prince's Trust, so I have mentees who I see, but at the moment I haven't got any because they've all moved on. Um, I wouldn't say I feel isolated. My family, uh, my three girls all live abroad. Two of them live in Italy, one lives in Canada. But my son lives in uh, north of London and I see my son from time to time. I had, um, <coughs> I had mentioned living with my cousin when I was 13 to 16 and he went on and married and his wife divorced him to enter a, a lesbian relationship and I have known her for 55 years so we we're, we have a very close friendship. We don't see each other that often but we saw each other from time to time and I have a very good um, friend, girlfriend, who lives in Manhattan, which is a bit of a downer because it's three and a half thousand miles away. Mm. But we talk to each other quite regularly and we get on well and we've, we've been to Alaska and we have been across the Atlantic on the Queen Mary. So, you know, we get on, we get on well. So I'm not, I don't feel isolated, but I would prefer some more contact and that's when I met you two when uh, uh, I hadn't realized there was this book club so uh, I mean I, I've only been twice now but I, 
I think it's got a nice sense of, of acceptance there. Perhaps I should say, dealing with the Isle of Wight, I, having been in the NHS or the side of the NHS in Wales, I was interested what source of uh, what resources there were on the island, and uh, the NHS trust here talked about transgender and the rest of it, and I tried to get involved. I used to come down uh, from Wales and spend the night and going to meetings and the rest of it, but it was. I think much more of a talking shop and it was put together more as a device to get uh, chartered status for the, the well they didn't call it chartered, what do they call it? The NHS Foundation Trust status uh, and that eventually dropped and I sensed that the support for the LGBT side of things evaporated. It's come back a bit now, um, but uh, I'm not entirely convinced that the, the NHS Trust here on the island is particularly supportive of transgender and probably not of um, LGBT people in general. So have you been to Time for Tea? Yes, I, I go there from time to time when I can. But you see, Anna was part of our group. But I think Anna felt very much the way that I did, that it was more of a talking shop, so she wanted to set up something which was more supportive, which she's done. And for a while, Jo, as long as you know she was working, was doing a, f a first-class job. Um, but now she's gone back to Portsmouth, to work in Portsmouth, so I, I'm, well, we'll see. Time for Tea is doing its thing, and it's wonderful the way that it has grown. And I found it so interesting to meet mothers whose young children were, com not necessarily coming out, but considering uh, gender transition or coming out as gay or whatever it may be and I thought that was very interesting because those discussions really were not available two three decades earlier so I've I've enjoyed that I, I don't go as much as I could for various reasons but well one of which is that it it's on a Thursday and the hospice concerts are on Thursday and I go as I will be this evening, going to the hospice concert. I'm very supportive of the hospice. I'm going to stop talking. I've been talking for an hour. You ask questions. <laughs> okay. Um, I wondered how your children uh, related to you transitioning. I thought you might ask that. <clears throat> <clears throat> My wife is Roman Catholic and was very not supportive, let's just say. My 
daughters were to some extent, to a, a differing extent, very unsupportive. My son knew all about it because he lived with me in Wales for five years and he's a musician and had managed to come off um, marijuana, which he regards as uh, um, worse in terms of addiction than, than other substances. And I said, well, look, you, you, he wanted to get away from the lifestyle he was in in London. And I said, well, just two rules, no substances on the, on the premises, and you'll just have to put up with me cross-dressing. And he said, well, that's not a big deal. I used to play at Raymond's Review Bar for a couple of years, and I've seen all there is to see. So, so that was that. So he's supportive. He's, very, he's always been very supportive. The girls, much less so. But they've, I've now got six grandchildren, and we are... It, things are getting better, but of course it's not easy because they live abroad. And do you think it, that it's partly the culture because they live in Italy, or two of them live in Italy, I think you said? Yeah, two of them live in Italy. Um, is it the culture? Well, I think th their mother would have had a big effect um, but they they love their mother dearly, as as do I. I'm still in touch. Every week we we have chat, and, and we're so we're we're okay. She just doesn't like um, the fact that I've transitioned. Um, but the girls are I well, you know, they're okay. But they're, I, I see them a couple of times a year. I kind of meant, is it because Italy's a Roman Catholic country which, which invests in tradition, perhaps, in a, a bigger way than... No, I think that's a stereotype of Italy which probably was true 40 or 50 years ago. It's a more outwardly think, outward thinking country um, and there's a lot of lip service to Catholicism, but... Um, Younger people in Italy are much more open-minded. No, I think they just, my kids, just didn't like the change from me being perceived as a successful career semi-chauvinist to the person that I, I really am. I mentioned, you see, this business of uh, hiding your real identity and I don't think I was ever a male chauvinist, but I'm sure there were people who felt that that was the case. I mean, I always gave preference to employing female people because they're so much better at doing the jobs required than mo most of the males. So I was probably not outspoken about it, but I always worked with and preferred to work with with women who, because they were better. Mm. I mean, so they had to be in order to get on. So when you were, um, is, are you kind of saying that when 
you to perform the role of being a man, you overacted in a, a certain way to to make it convincing for people. Yes, I think most of the trans women that I know have done much the same. They have um, exaggerated their male behaviour to protect their real identity from the bullying and the comments and the rest of it. That's, that's certainly what happened to me and, and the uh, people who I am, the uh, uh, trans women who I am closer to. Um, but uh, I guess, well, everyone's an individual and they deal with things in their, in what they think is the best and appropriate way. I've tried to illustrate how I behaved and why, because I would have preferred to transition when I was, before I was in my teens. Mm. But it, it just, in those days, it just wasn't even, well, nobody knew what transgender was. I mean, there were, the, the, understanding and well the understanding of gay behavior was was virtually non-existent it was regarded as a joke and nobody would even discuss lesbianism i mean you know no such i mean it's the male society well you know how could a woman prefer another woman to us, of course, mm -hmm. you know, most of my female friends are lesbian and I like the company, but, and there is a big but, older lesbians, um, are, there are a number who are hotly against transgender in any way. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess, you know, well, it's simply a question of, I'm not sure if the right word's education, but I think people need to understand the facts and what's going on in much the way that when the uh, <coughs> anti-gay or the gay legislation of the 60s and 70s um, began to expose and, and discuss openly about gay behaviour, and more and more people in society realised that this wasn't a, a lifestyle choice. There was more to it than that. Mm. And I think we're going to see a similar um, route, both for the lesbian community, because I, I think the lesbian community is 30 years behind the male gay community in, in a public acceptance. I think there's a residue of, of antagonism towards lesbians, mm -hmm. but, but that, and the transgender are even further behind in, in getting people to realise that there is um, more to it than just a lifestyle. Do you think that it's partly because people assume that men have privilege which they, and people can't understand why you would give up Privilege. I don't think people think about it. I think most mm. we we still have a very male orientated, privileged society that most people, unless they're female, don't 
don't uh, really think about. And that's half of the problem, you know, with anything which is, um, what's the word, complicated. People would prefer not to think complicatedly about things. They just want simplicity, which is what this Brexit non malarkey is all about. People don't want to know that the lies of it'll be dead easy to Brexit were founded, you know, <laughs> founded on next to nothing. People don't want to challenge it. We just want to get it over with. And that is the defect of uh, our education system here, I feel. Education now has become passing exams and ticking boxes and not causing people to think, which is, as an educator, I feel is, 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 is very important. I remember I used to teach an MBA class <coughs> and I, in business, well, one of the classes I taught was in business strategy and somebody, a very bright senior middle manager of a big UK company stood up and said, well, what's the right answer? you know, to the best strategy, we would, I wrote case studies and we were going through this particular case study. What's the best strategy? And I said, well, there isn't one. This is, you've got to work it out. These, I'm teaching you the, the um, principles that you might apply, but the best strategy for you in a senior position is the one that you can deliver. And, you know, there is no right answer, sunshine. Just discuss the concepts and that's what you're here to learn and hopefully go away and apply. And I think, you know, that particular intervention, it's remained with me because I think it's significant in complexity and in a complex society. And I think it's why we're all being hoodwinked by um, the... I was going to say, um, the internet, it's not the internet, we're being hoodwinked into believing that you can program something which works with people. We're being hoodwinked because so many people don't properly think about what is happening. When your Google um, flags up the... Um, <coughs> Uh, where to go shopping or whatever it is. It's because somebody's written an algorithm which is supplanting your ability to think as an individual. And so many people are so damn lazy, they won't think about it, they're being hoodwinked. And it's getting worse. I, sorry. Do you mind? Um, I don't. You go ahead. <laughs> that um, you, you were, oh, excuse me, you were on the island when you were little and you learned how to swim in sea view. Yes. So you'd obviously just come for holidays and things. That's right. And then in the late 80s, you were in Yarmouth. Early 90s. Early 90s. So how long were you here for? Three years. Three years. And so you felt comfortable enough and it gave you, you know, you had good memories, hence the reason that you decided in latter years then to, to come and live here. I wouldn't say that I felt 
I felt really comfortable and I enjoyed doing the job. Um, and I think I was reasonably successful, but I still was a closet cross-dresser. Mm -hmm. But I um, met a very, a brilliant, very helpful lady as a counsellor, not a psychosexual counsellor, but a counsellor who every week I used to see and she and encouraged, that was, that was on the island, and I used to drive over and uh, it, it started really, my in, uh, initial intention was to see what I could do to rebuild my marriage. Because but, you know, we were separated, but we didn't divorce for quite a while. And, uh, but then it moved on to discussing my gender dysphoria, what turned out to be a diagnosis of gender dysphoria, which took about six years under the system. The system didn't really work right. very well. The, 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 there's a dichotomy for me in that we all say and we all, all feel, and I mean, I, I personally relish the idea that we're 25 years behind. You know, I like that we are actually have got old-fashioned values or or it doesn't seem to be so, um, I don't know, dog-eat-dog -dog over here, really. No, I agree. And I, I think there's, there's a much more... Comfortable, reassuring community atmosphere about the island. Hmm. Yet, you, you know, you, you, you think, wouldn't you, that you know, actually, in in our in our sort of enlightened ways in two thousand and nineteen, and our acceptance of everybody being individual is is more. I'm, I'm sort of, I'm rambling here a bit, but you know, we, we, we're more able to be ourselves now. Yes. Yes. So if we're 25 years behind on the island, isn't there a dichotomy? Isn't there a sort of a mismatch? Well, it's a nice intellectual point, Bron, I think. <laughs> um, I don't think you can whitewash everything with 25 years behind. I mentioned that. Mm. I'm, I, I, and I really was quite flippantly mentioned it, um, but in the days when I was first here, with uh, um, in the early nineties, <coughs> there were what was it? Um, people were using expressions like "Colonel Blimps" and all the rest of it about some of the older people's attitudes on the island. Um, I heard the word Colonel Blimp and all that sort of thing used quite often. We're talking early 90s. I don't know that means, well, it refers to people's... Well, I'll give you an example. When I lived in Sussex, I was fortunate enough to be able to afford a, a very prestigious house. It's the one over there. I'm hanging up. And we moved in and a couple of days later <laughs> I got this knock on the front door and the chap who stood there was <coughs> um, he wasn't he, he, what, I'm trying to remember his rank in the army it was I don't know major general or whatever who was the chairman of the local conservative party and 
talked to me, didn't ask questions, just assumed that I would be a conservative and went on for five, ten minutes about everything that he believed in. And I said, look, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but <coughs> what makes you think that I'm a conservative? <laughs> and he was gobsmacked. People form prejudices and views very easily and don't necessarily face, yeah, well, I was going to say face the facts yeah. or ask about the facts. Hence my reduction of 50 to 25 years, because I think now people do, but there are still a large number of people, many of whom are incomers from the mainland of, of, of a certain age, who just find it easier to work on stereotypes and, pre, and, and prejudices rather than think. But you see, I'm biased. I, my, my children, it's a good example, my children used to get to ask their mum questions and her, my ex uh, would do their homework for them. And I refused. <coughs> I refused to. I would ask questions back and my middle daughter, oh, several years ago now, said, actually, Dad, um, we thought that was, that's really was a lot more helpful because as an educator um, and a, a business coach and mentor, you have to try and get people to see things for themselves not tell them what they've got to think or what is the right answer and the rest of it. Now, I lament Mr. Blair and his stupid attempt to have 50% of students going to a university because it was so blatantly obvious that you, although they rigged it so that all universities were the same, it was blatantly obvious they couldn't be because you can't suddenly magic huge numbers of lecturers and up, up their skills. And we've got this situation, well, we, we all know it, don't we? There's the Russell Group universities, which are the same as all the others, except they're not. And I have, I have strong views about... Um, the educational approach. I was responsible for developing training in management and marketing when I worked. My son uh, went to do his first degree in music in York, which was then regarded one of the top music universities. And uh, when he was living with me, went to Glamorgan to study film and video because he was writing music for films and he wrote music for commercials and he thought he, it would be a good idea to find out a bit more. And <coughs> he struggled. He struggled for two reasons. One, the lecturers were not um, properly competent. Um, the students knew more about digital video than the lecturers who were trained in analog video or 
of being television cameramen and that sort of thing. Uh, and secondly, he, he was so disparaging about the competence of the many of the students to articulate properly. And he became a bit of a, the front man, as it were, for complaints about the university for mis-selling what they were selling. Um, he couldn't afford to, he was paid off with 500 quid. Uh, um, he got his degree and all the rest of it, uh, so that was fine, but they then went back, uh, the, some of the students carried on, and they uh, eventually the university was um, required to back down and pay a much larger compensation figures because it accepted it had misrepresented what the course could or was trying to do. And I listen to my son and I think, crikey, you know, I was at university a long time ago now and we used to sit and discuss the courses and what was being taught and we'd have fierce arguments. And now we've got a situation which I'm afraid Mr. Blair and his, um, what, what do we call, what do they call it, the league tables have done, which is learning how to pass an exam. And I'm afraid, I'm hotly, well, I, you can probably tell I'm not uh, supportive of all of that. Michelle, can I, can I pull you back again? Sure. To, um, just talking about how um, the Isle of Wight was back in the early 90s, mm -hmm. and how, you know, the, the environment, were you conscious of the LGBT environment back in the 90s? No. There wasn't so one. There wasn't one. <coughs> not, not that I recognised. Um, my many years later, I refer to the fact that I had a relationship here with a, a lesbian girl on the island, and she said, "Look, there isn't a, a lesbian group because we all know who we are." Um, did, she, you, did you know somebody called Phaedra? The name I've heard. Where have I heard the name? So yeah, she was the first known trans person on the island and she really promoted trans rights here. When was that? Back in the early 90s. Well, uh, I late think 80s earlier time. actually, probably late 80s. Mm. Yeah, early 90s. That's where I've heard the name. Mm. But I, I, to my knowledge, I haven't met her. Mm. And certainly at that time I didn't. And my counsellor didn't mention she... Uh, Diane Dodd did mention um, mermaids in in Southampton, um, but I never I never got involved. Is that a children's? Um, I think it is. It is. I think I've got the name right. Mermaids. I I really ought to be more competent because I was on the. The trust of the of the gender trust. I was part of the trust, so I ought to know the names. I think it was mermaid, and I think it's probably evolved into younger people mm. supporting, because um, uh, Bernard and have you come across Gyres? G I R is the Gender Identity Research and Education Society. 
and it's run by Bernard and Terry, who I got to know very well. Uh, I hadn't had much to do with in the last few years, but they are, are very much in the forefront of developing um, approaches for younger people, and they've they specialised in that. And of course, when you're starting from nothing, you build up awareness, and then with increased awareness and increased discussion, there is a, 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 a the having a single group becomes more difficult. People make their own, they, they set up their own support groups and the rest of it. So we're not running a, a business here or a marketing strategy. We are trying to get people to be aware, to think and to explain. And it's, it doesn't work all that effectively, certainly not from a business point of view, but in terms of the people that are being supported, the, uh, they, these, the fractured group is, is a more supportive environment than having the Gender Trust, which was national. I mean, we tried to um, make people more aware nationally, and gradually support for the Gender Trust evaporated away because it needed to focus more on giving real support. Um, because the support, you, the, first of all, you need to find out. But then you move on from that to how you move forward. And the Gender Trust couldn't or didn't offer that. Can I just offer, um, would it be OK to, to start um, sort of summing up now? Sure. But before we do, you, you said that actually older lesbians can be more antagonistic or, or anti-transgender. Yes, I found that and that is the case. Have you found that case. on the Isle of Wight? Is that no. something that's been specific? No, I haven't. Yeah, but have you well, older lesbians, well, it depends how old you call old, you know, um, but probably not. But I have got to know a number of lesbian folk and uh, on the island, but I also have quite close contact with people on the mainland, uh, lesbian couples, and, well... I haven't, to answer your question, no, I haven't. Oh, I'm really pleased about that. I'm Good. Really pleased, yeah, that's, that's reassuring. Or it means that they've lowered their profile. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it would be reassuring if we could say there were people who had hostile attitudes, but they, as they have learned more, their attitudes have developed. I would feel more reassured by that. Um, there have been some very high-profile discussions and issues, like um, Martina Martina Navratilova, mm -hmm. um, and there's a um, a group of women in Bristol as lesbians who are separatists still. And it's um, well, my cousin, who I have a very close relationship with, is a lesbian who lives in Bristol, mm. and I have met people there who feel. 
I'm not sure the word is hostile or antagonistic, but definitely not particularly supportive. Mm -hmm. But we're talking about, I'm talking about an age group of 70 odd years. Mm. Um, it must have been it's a demographic that I don't, you know, mm. don't know any lesbians that are over 70 or, you know. Mm. My, that, my that's because very, you're very still very 21. Absolutely, and a half. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, right, of course. So, um, are, are there any other things that you like to say? Because I realise how long have we done now? Um, We've got an hour and five minutes. On there. Hold on. Well, I looked at... Um, I, well, I wrote down um, that we start at 11, 11.30. So. Oh, okay. So, yeah, we've been going for about an hour. That's an fine. Hour five minutes. So, but, okay. Anything, yeah, we don't else, anything that we didn't cover that you would like to say or...? It's, <coughs> it, it's to do with the way, I mean, I've tried to be as open as I can. Um, the way that this will be presented and used, and I read Carolyn's note, and that's fine, and, but I still wonder how it's going to be used, to what effect. It comes over more as a historical record than um, a way to move things forward. I, I think the idea is it relates to your point about acceptance and discussion and also making lesbian, gay, transsexual, um, queer. queer people um, people for the rest of the public because the stereotype is the easiest thing to resort to, but once you get to know somebody and know their history, you, mm. you know, begin to know their personality and to recognise them <coughs> um, in that way, I think that that's a significant part here. Um, and the idea that these things, well, one of the, the anxieties we all have is that um, just as you can have progress, you can have regression, and that has been seen in all sorts of bits of the world uh, where there are no rights for people like us. And, um, well, look at the USA, I mean... Well, Brazil, Brazil, you know... Brazil, Tambay. Very dangerous things. And so there's an anxiety that we But it's more deep, it, it, it's... That Bolsonaro is, is just something else, but you, you shouldn't assume that the whole of Brazil, oh, no. there, is, there is a much greater support. Uh, I mean, a transgender person won Miss Brazil in the early 80s. So, and it was there in your face, and there are lots of, um, there's a much more accepted, uh, 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 an environment of acceptance. Although I have to be careful what I say because I, it's 35 years since I lived in Brazil. But I do have contacts still in Brazil and friends there. And I would say that there's a bit like the USA, there's a small group of hardcore misogynistic chauvinist men on the whole. But I don't think that represents the Brazilian society any more than it does in the USA, except I suspect there are more chauvinistic misogynists in the USA 
um, certainly who have come out after um, Trumpicito uh, came on the scene, uh, little Trump, Trumpicito, um, I think it's uncovered this, some of these misogynistic values uh, in the USA. But my uh, friends and her, my, her, Alison and her uh, sisters are very, very much in the anti-Trump camp because of the degree of misogyny and things. One of them is a film director and she's extremely vocal and the other one runs a B&B &B, but she's in the same camp and I look at it and I think, crikey, what are they doing? Um, and they're pulling Trump by the nose. The, uh, um, the religious right in particular have got uh, an extraordinary amount of influence over the way he runs, in inverted commas, in between his golf trips, the, 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 the White House. And there's a lot of really worrying trends there about, like, for example, the number of federal judges who have been, who have, have been, uh, now that's Lottie, she chews things up, she's a pain. Well, that has been my pleasure. I'm not sure I was quite as structured. What a fantastic life journey. Thanks, Margaret, and thank you, Michelle, for sharing your story with us. Don't forget, follow, share, subscribe, connect with us. Visit www.outonanisland.co.uk or on social media at outonanislandiw. Hashtag Our Stories Matter. In the next episode, Franco Figueiredo talks to Rosa McComark. Rosa shares her memories of performing with the Pink Singers, fundraising around Europe, volunteering for the Island's Gay and Lesbian Switchboard, and so much more. Don't forget to tune in! Thank you for listening. <laughs>